really is it really is amazing what, what primary teachers do. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Stuart Welsh. Hello, Kieran. Lisa Coe. Hi, Kieran. And Neil Almond. Good evening, everyone. So this is going to be slightly different from normal because this is almost a a recreation of the panel that we sort of, I don't know, delivered, took part in during MassCon 29 in Kettering. Although the panel was different on the day from planned, and it's different now from the panel that took part, but I think we're still going to have a really rich conversation. And so my first question on the day, my first question now is going towards you, Stuart. What does mastery mean to you? And is it something we should aspire to? So thank you for passing that uh, question to me first, Kieran. What a question it is indeed. Um, I think that's something that we could talk on and on at length about. And um, I do feel that uh, definitions of mastery vary wildly, uh, depending on, on who you speak to. And, um, and so I think it, it's, it's certainly important for us to, to consider what mastery probably isn't, uh, as, well as, as well as maybe how it's evolved over over time to, to what we currently think of mastery uh, at the moment. And um, so I suppose th the first thing I would say that mastery probably isn't is that, it, that it's not a textbook or an online platform, and it's, it's not a curriculum either. Um, there's plenty of things available that may say, you know, here's a mastery curriculum um, or here's a mastery textbook or whatever, but these things are, are just resources. I think it's how you use these things that determines whether you're you're adopting a, a mastery type approach, um, and so yes, uh, a, a solid, uh, logically sequenced, coherent curriculum is, uh, is is a foundation there. But for me, it's it's about what we do as teachers, the moves that we make uh, within that curriculum that uh, move us towards uh, teaching for for mastery type of approach. It's also not just really hard questions. For a while, I thought if you've mastered something, then you know, you can do a hard question on it. So that means you can tick that box and say it's mastered. Um, it's much, much more than that. I think mastery um, in terms of mathematics is, is a big part about seeing the connections across and through mathematics and not just being able to answer the, the tough ones. It's also something that you can't just flick a switch and, um, and turn on immediately. And uh, I do know that, you know, there are, there are schools that have sort of decided from September, we'll be doing mastery. And um, you know, it's always interesting to, to hear about the, the planning and the preparation that's gone in before that, because it, it is a move, it is a, it is a journey, I think, toward mastery and something that you might not see real benefits for three to five years um, as, as you watch pupils move through that system to see the real power of, of mastery. Now, we know that breaking new learning down into small steps is, is a good idea. But uh, there's a danger that we, we think mastery might be breaking sort of learning into micro granules and sort of viewing them in isolation and sort of working hard on them until you can do them without thinking. And then you can tick them off and say that's mastered as well. And obviously, 
that level of, sort of fluency and automaticity is something that we, we would be aspiring to. But we, we also want to never lose sight of the bigger connections between those granules. Um, and so it's not just about cutting it down into tiny little bits. Um, I suppose the other thing is that it's not all about manipulatives. Um, so I work with Complete Mathematics and, and we talk about CPAL, the Concrete Pictorial Abstract Language uh, relationship, that cycle between those four. And um, I think that you know, when, when schools and, and teachers are thinking about shifting toward a mastery approach, then they're probably going to be examining their pedagogy and that uh, the CPAL approaches are something that they would want to consider but just wheeling out the, um, the base 10 equipment, the Cuisinaire rods, the coloured counters, isn't mastery again. Uh, it's, it's just an element of, of sort of a powerful pedagogy. And I suppose the other thing um, that uh, one of my colleagues, Dave Taylor, is fond of saying is that it's not something we just do on a Monday. Um, you know, mas mastery is something that we, that we buy into, that we, that we, we adopt as our philosophy. Um, and so it's not just a case of, okay, we'll, we'll do a bit of mastery now at the end of this topic and we can sort of tick the mastery box. So I suppose that's a big list of things that mastery isn't, um, and I imagine the rest of the panel will come in at some point um, and, and talk about what, what we feel mastery is, but you, I think you can come at it from two ends, come at it from a very sort of theoretical high level and, and talk about a complete philosophy of schooling, about a belief in what uh, learners are capable of doing. Um, and from the other end, you can come at it from quite a technical sense in terms of it's, it's about moves and behaviours that teachers make in the classroom. But I think ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to um, look at mastery uh, through the sort of eyes and, and early work of Benjamin Bloom. You know, his, his model of, of mastery is, is really the only one that's been sort of researched and tested and shown to, to work over and over, sort of developed further by, by Thomas Guskey. Um, and it's really just this, this idea of trying to um, bring all the benefits of one-to-one -one tuition. We know that's the best way to work with a, with a, a student or a pupil is working one-to-one -to, -one to, to bring those benefits into that one-to-many environment which we have in the class and something that's so hard to do. The famous uh, Two Sigma problem which Bloom uh, posed uh, that pupils tutored one-to-one -one perform on average two standard deviations better than um, the average pupil in a sort of conventional class. So Bloom's early sort of take on mastery was, was really all about um, formative assessment and corrective teaching, basically finding out what pupils know and don't know and doing something about it um, and taking the time to actually make those changes. And Bloom showed you could get big gains in the classroom doing that. And I think over time, certainly the work that we do at Complete Mathematics is, is, is sort of fine-tuned that down even further, uh, really, really thinking about prerequisite knowledge really testing if pupils have that, um, working with corrective teaching and um, some sort of intervention if required. Some pupils may be doing enrichment work before the whole group moves into a new idea together, um, where we, we work through that with a variety of teaching approaches. And then it's all about this continual formative assessment, making sure that we're not moving on until uh, all the pupils have achieved at least that 80% mastery threshold in, in the new idea. And you know, I think it's huge in mathematics because it is such a, uh, you know, some people talk about hierarchical subjects, almost more than that. It's so interconnected mathematics, ideas running all the way up and down through the curriculum and jumping across and joining things together that you wouldn't think were joined together. And a subject that is so interconnected in that way that being sure of these foundation 
building blocks is, is to me, it just seems like, you know, a no-brainer um, that, that we would want to go down that approach. So I've obviously um, hogged the answer to that question, but uh, it is, it's something that I've thought long and hard about. I've seen it working in classes. Uh, I think it absolutely is something we should aspire to, but we do need to also understand that it isn't a switch that we can flick. We can't say to the teachers, from Monday, you have to start doing mastery. It needs a lot of support, it needs a lot of thinking, a lot of planning, and um, you know, a lot of sort of CPD that goes along with that. I think Stuart's touched, I'll just add kind of one more thing, I'm just, and it's something that Stuart touched upon that I want to really reiterate from the reading around mastery that I've done, is that especially uh, thinking from the primary perspective, it's only kind of something that you hear about within mathematics education. There are several kind of schemes out there that, as Stuart mentioned, are, you know, offer you some sort of you know, the mastery scheme that's going to you know, cure all your mathematical ills. Um, but actually it's not the case to say it. mathematics is a model of teaching that can apply to pretty much any subject. I'm sure Stuart would challenge that and say it applies to every subject. And I think that's for me in terms of my journey as it was, that was the biggest thing because as I was, developing my teaching, my understanding of everything, which was pretty much, you know, before Mark McCourt wrote his book, you know, mastery to me was just something that existed within maths. And there was this special, you know, mastery threshold that you had to get, um, which is why it was really interesting reading about the historic, you know, beginnings of uh, the, mas the mastery as a model of schooling with the, you know, Winnetica plan and things like that. Um, so, one thing for sure that it isn't is something that is specific just to maths. It is something that you can apply across you know, multiple, if not all subjects across uh, across a school. Um, I think it's really interesting what you've talked about, um, particularly with connections. So Stuart talked about the importance of connections and how interconnected maths is for me. And I think my sort of journey into mastery has come slightly differently um certainly from Stuart's I think probably from Neil's as well in that I worked with Arts Mathematics Mastery Programme who have a sort of almost a different but connected approach and idea around mastery so mastery for them ultimately is about being able to um uh, approach a concept in an entirely novel way and having the understanding of that concept to be able to tackle a novel problem involving that concept. I know Stuart said about, um, you know, that not being harder problems, and I agree with that, but I think it is about using that interconnectedness and being able to recognise when we are looking at fractions, say, the relationship between multiplication and division. Um, so for me, mastery is something to aspire to because we as teachers need to make sure that we are thinking about those small steps. We are thinking about the interconnectedness and we are ensuring that all of the children are, to use my colleague's phrase, on the bus, keeping up um, with those small steps in order to be able to then use those and utilize those skills and strategies um, to different contexts and different problems. So I think, um, although I come at it from a slightly different perspective, I think actually I have a similar, it's a sort of, they're in the same wheelhouse in terms of, of the importance of 
mastery and I completely agree it's not something you can just suddenly pick up and do it's not something you know you can't start arcs mathematics mastery scheme and suddenly be doing doing mastery it's about a whole school shift um a whole school journey um to to developing a mastery style of teaching and those are pretty comprehensive responses I think it's difficult you know normally I'll push back but what I don't want to do is I don't want to try and influence the panel's thoughts or look as if I'm pushing one aspect of the panel's responses too much. So I, I think that's a good way to start. You know, the reason that question's in there is because Elliot Morgan, whenever we're doing live streams, you know, Stuart, before this, you were talking about Atoll's Math Chat Live. So he knows that Mark McCord will listen to Math Chat Live. And so he will ask us what we think mastery is to see to try and put us on the spot as much as possible in that situation. So he can consider this question fully answered. <laughs> so then the next question came from Tom Oakley on our Discord, which I think most of you, if not all of you guys, are members of to varying degrees. And he says, does extending higher attaining children towards greater depth act in opposition to our efforts to close the gap between pupils? Lisa, you okay if I throw it your way? The air quotes are doing a lot of work in that question, but there are a lot of contentious terms um, in what is a really <laughs> provocative question. It, yeah, it, I mean, it is, it is a provocative question and I've, I've been thinking about it. And I think what's interesting for me is that my gut reaction is no. My gut reaction is just to say no, Tom, and that, that's it, end of conversation. Because for me, um, we, we close the gap by ensuring that all pupils have access to, if we're thinking about mastery, and if we're thinking about fluency, and I'll just define that in a second, I think um, for me, it's about all children having access to mastery style teaching. So that small steps progression, that ensuring everyone is together, the formative assessment, the working out what they don't know. Um, then I think that is what will help close the gap. So for me, fluency, because I know that can be defined in lots of different ways. Um, fluency for me is around being able to, um, the way I put it is to interrogate a question. So to look at say an arithmetic question and really focus on it and think which of the strategies, if it's an addition question, which of my strategies is the best one and is the most efficient one for this particular question. And I think if we are promoting that with all of our learners, then that is what is going to close the gap. So the question talked about our higher attaining pupils and our stretch and challenge. And I think that's, for me, I don't think that is going to I don't think that's going to hinder widening the gap because I think that those children will be offered depth within a concept. So I think it does again depend on how, how you're defining stretch and challenge and what you're doing with stretch and challenge. And I know that um, my colleagues on the panel, you know, will will understand the, the concept of stretch being about depth of a concept rather than bigger numbers or harder questions or whatever it might be but I also know that we still in the primary profession in particular we still have a bit of a, a hang up there where teachers will think higher retaining pupils need bigger numbers or word problems or multi-step problems or whatever it is so I don't think that offering depth within a concept to children that are more quickly grasping the basics 
is going to um, widen that gap, provided that we are doing all of the formative assessment stuff that Stuart mentioned to make sure that the majority of our students, 80% um, or whatever sort of target you're setting, um, are grasping those basics and getting that kind of fluency approach. Um, but I'm happy to be uh, questioned on that. It's a, um, yeah, it's a very loaded question. Uh, having talked to Tom Oakley many times, I know how carefully he crafts such things. So, you know, the issue of, you know, greater depth, you know, what is, what is that in mathematics? I don't think anyone really truly actually knows what that is. In fact, I'd go as far as saying it doesn't even exist. You either understand the mathematical ideas and you can apply them in novel contexts, or you, you can't. The idea that there's kind of something else that's getting greater depth is in my opinion a little bit uh, little bit silly however um going back to saying thing about what Stuart said then kind of like the mastery cycle part of that mastery cycle is this idea of you know enrichment tasks um and so therefore if you are um applying the mastery cycle you are making that um decision that at some point at some time there will just be some tasks that only an x percentage of uh the students will ever see now you could talk about then like an equity issue as whether you know, is that fair because mary meyer i know talks about how you know, the children in that um who aren't in that kind of greater depth uh, percentile you know they crave and they want those kind of activities. And it might be the case that you know, presenting them the presenting them those types of activities might actually aid and support their learning. And you know, you can pair them up and you can do all kinds of you know pedagogical choices within the classroom that might actually help support those pupils as well. So it's a very difficult question to answer fully, but I would say that if I had to pick, I would say that it probably does go some way to widening that gap because of the cognitive processes that one must go through with those types of enrichment tasks. Because I'm imagining whether deliberately or um, undeliberately, by providing them those, those tasks, you are bringing about things like method selection. There probably will be an element of interleaving because you're going to see if they can apply it into a context perhaps that they've learned about previously. There's going to be that added retrieval um, practice element from those tasks that are only going to help strengthen that mathematical schemer, a schema. So whilst I understand the reasons why you want to do that, because I say mathematics is a pretty, as far as I'm concerned, pretty hierarchical subject. If you don't understand uh, X, it's difficult for you to get and go on to the next element of it. But I think then there needs to come that pragmatic, you know, point of view where you know when we give children these kind of things we probably are widening the gap however we're doing it for the purpose that actually it's going to either lesser lessen that gap in the future or it's going to enable um those children who aren't ready for that enrichment process uh, to actually uh keep abreast with everyone else in that group in the kind of the short term. Can I just I'll sort of re respond to that before Stuart, I'm um, sorry Stuart, um, I just I just wanted to ask Neil, so do you think then, if I'm understanding you correctly and I might be totally wrong, do you think then potentially 
the the mastery approach and those kind of options for those enrichment tasks might be widening the gap but potentially we're shifting the attainment of all the children a little bit higher through that kind of approach and so while we're widening the gap the lower attaining children is a bit higher does that make sense i just i just wanted to i just wondered what you what you thought there yeah it makes perfect sense um there is a, a bloom paper and i can't recall the exact one but um on it he kind of um plots a kind of uh, a standard deviation on the bell curve and what a mastery deviation on the bell curve would be and you know we don't cut out that middle that uh, that kind of bottom 20 percent. all we do is we shift it a little bit more further on um which you know i am a big fan of mastery of course but you know there's also that element of you know being in the classroom and <laughs> all those decisions that come with it um if we can shift that bell curve and that's kind of a you know that normal distribution then absolutely like that's what we should be doing um and i think you know some of these things that for what i would say is that if it was the same pupils always doing that enrichment something is probably going wrong as long as you were ensuring that across uh don't put it in such blunt terms like a term or whatever as long as across their mathematical journey all pupils are kind of experiencing that enrichment absolutely fine you know you are probably doing something right you know geometry and number are very different beasts however if as you're kind of progressing through this journey of the mathematics you are finding it's always the same three four five pupils who are accessing that enrichment I think something's going wrong. So um, I'm nodding away here, Neil, um, with that, uh, particularly with that, with that final point. I think it's so important that we don't lose sight of the fact that um, all pupils should be getting those opportunities to um, behave mathematically, to, to experience um, you know, using their maths, as, as Lisa sort of mentioned earlier on. It's not, it's not all about what you know, but what can you do with what you know? And um, so we, we must be factoring that into our teaching that sort of behaving mathematically type phase but going back to Tom's question which um, you know I've got a lot of respect for Tom and uh, I'm delighted that he's given this question I'd like to think you know how are we defining this gap what is the gap is it is it a gap in attainment is it just raw old exam scores at the end of the day or, or are we talking about the gap between pupils experience of school mathematics because some pupils have a really really tough time going through school and uh, they don't enjoy maths, they're switched off from an early age, they find it too challenging, they can't make head nor tail of it. And you know, you've got you've got over a decade of this sort of torment for these poor children. And if there's a gap that we should be closing, the gap that we should close is, is that one between the experience. Because I, I don't think there's any reason why people should have to find maths um, so challenging. But th th there is a, a, a sort of source of that, and it tends to be because we quite often give pupils work that's beyond the level that they're, they're actually at. And I think it only gets amplified as we go through the years of schooling because the gap, which is ultimately going to present itself as an attainment gap um, when it comes to GCSE, for example, that, that gap is, is also causing groups of pupils to, to be sort of given work um, that's deemed to be appropriate for their age when it's actually not appropriate for the mathematical development. And so, you know, the, the, the gap, however we define it, is, is something we want to tackle. And the way to tackle it is, is by teaching from mastery. Um, you know, 
we, we talked there or we heard there about the same three or four pupils perhaps accessing the enrichment material. It should be the other way around. There should be three or four pupils getting some corrective instruction for a small amount of time while the rest of the class do some enrichment before we then all move on with the new mathematical idea together. Um, or otherwise our mastery system isn't working. I think if we've only ever got a, a, a handful of pupils who are giving uh, sort of extension and enrichment, then there's something not, not right, there's something broken in that system. And the, the, the key really here is um, to try and remember that greater depth or enrichment or however we want to call it, it certainly doesn't mean giving bigger numbers. Lisa, absolutely, you're spot on with that. Um, and it also doesn't mean sort of just doing harder versions of the same question. Um, maths is so rich. I mean, we're probably going to come on and talk about curriculum at some point during this conversation. There's a, there's a lot in there already in the school curriculum, but maths is much, much bigger than that. Outside of school maths, there's so many interesting things that pupils can be exposed to at various stages in the maths journey, which we can classify as enrichment. And it gives them the opportunity just to see maths in a different light, whether it's simple stuff like working with patterns or looking at combinations, making ordered lists, really um, being, being that little bit more mathematical. And so does it, does it close the gap? Does it open the gap? Does it run a risk? If the gap is an attainment gap, then teaching for mastery, which involves giving pupils enrichment material while we support others, in my opinion, is not going to widen that gap because what we're doing by working with the pupils who need corrective instruction is we're working to close the gap. And that's, that's the point of the whole system. Um, and I don't think that the enrichment material are going to add so much that they're going to open uh, and widen the attainment gap. Yes, there might be something in terms of the richness of the pupils' experience, but I would still rather have large um, bodies of pupils enjoying the maths journey um, and being supported and feeling part of the work that the class is doing than, than have them just be cut adrift and fall by the wayside. 2019, I think, was, was perhaps the last time we could we can look at exam results um, and, and sort of make some, some, some judgment calls. And I've been looking recently at GCSE results. I think um, grades seven, eight, and nine, so those are the top three grades, about 16% of pupils um, sitting at GCSEs get the, the seven, eight, or nine. So those are the pupils that are on a, a pretty good trajectory through school maths. Those are probably the ones in a mastery model where they'll do quite a bit of enrichment, I would imagine. But something like 23% of pupils that sat the GCSE in 2019 got either a U or a one or a two. And, and that's, a, that's a huge number who are not achieving in a qualification, which I believe they could pass. And they could pass if they'd been on a mastery tra trajectory from primary school. Um, that's, that's the difference that we can make. And so if it comes to um, doing a little bit of enrichment work for some pupils whilst we support others, and the support results in them getting a four or a five for the GCSE at that stage, then we've, we've won a watch, we've done the right thing. Um, and I think that's probably my response to Tom. Yeah, a deceptively devilish question, that one from Tom. You know, they're, they're not going easy on us at all. Well, I say us, they're not going easy on you guys at all. The next one is from Charlotte Hawthorne, who is obviously, you know, regular at maths comps and big part of them. Johnny Hall's, is it maths takeaways that he does on a Friday night sometimes? Yeah, teaching together. They, they do um, teaching together. Teaching together, which I think started online, but there's actually, there's been a few possibly in person. Um, and she says, the national curriculum is overcrowded. And some ideas, such as adding fractions and mixed numbers, 
could easily be left completely until secondary. To what extent do you agree with this statement? And are there other examples that you wish were in key stage one or two, but aren't? So another easy one for us to, you know, to the skin of. <laughs> Is it overloaded? I would say yes. I think there's a large portion of the primary teacher population that says, you know, there's far too much content to teach for children to actually be able to master, pardon the pun, uh, the content that we are actually asking them to, to learn. And I think because of the pressures of an overcrowded curriculum, you that's where you have that, um, that's where that conveyor belt curriculum approach then starts to come in. You think, oh, I have to take children through this journey quickly because I have this end result here, which is that either key stage one sats uh, at year two or key stage two sats uh, key stage one sats at year two or key stage two sats at year six saying that though i don't think adding mixed numbers is one of those things that i would uh, take out i think if you're pretty uh, content with the uh, with the idea of addition and you really have a thorough understanding of what addition is and you really understand your times tables, uh, the adding of mixed numbers is not something that should particularly give you much discomfort. That said, I think there are things that we can do uh, with the primary curriculum to ensure that uh, pupils have enough time, particularly at key stage one, to really understand those foundations of mathematics, because I think that's where you have to be very careful. So much mathematics happens early on in the early years key stage one and i think if you track people's um understanding of particularly number back far enough i think you'll find that where they fall down is probably around uh key stage one because of that kind of conveyor belt we need to kind of get through uh things like we expect because of the national curriculum um whilst students are still trying to understand and come together with the, uh, the base 10 system, uh, we then throw base 60 at them quite quickly through the act of telling time and how many hours are minutes and how many hours are days, et cetera, et cetera. And I think at that point, it potentially is too abstract for them. So time, if I could uh, wield a magic wand and say what can be taken out of key stage one to uh, provide more time to make sure the foundation of su the success can be there. I would take time out completely. Many a teacher argues about uh, the idea of Roman numerals being taken um, out. I'm actually a, a big fan of the Roman numerals just because for so many, um, for some pupils who I've taught who have struggled with the idea of a place value system, once you throw an additive system at them like um, Roman numerals, a lot of place value seems to click in place. And I think for that reason, um, which again, is totally uh, you know, part of my own experience of teaching mathematics, uh, it's been the thing that children need to kind of click. So I know that some teachers, when they hear this question, might say, yeah, throw out Roman numerals, I would keep it in for that reason. But I think our biggest wins are definitely getting rid of the time from uh, key stage one completely. I would take fractions out of year 
one and move all of that content to perhaps to year, year two, year three as well. Because I think fractions, again, this idea of you know, pupils, in my experience, you know, they're still not kind of clear the fact, you know, the way that you can partition seven and the sevenness of seven and seven can be one and six, it can be, uh, you know, two and five. The idea that then we kind of have this half of what a one is as well, it kind of happens too early in that kind of mathematical trajectory for my, uh, from my experience anyway. I'll, I'll pass it on to Lise now because uh, I, you could rant about this all day and I, I don't want it to be that. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Neil. Um, I, I agree with you um, in a lot of a lot of those points. I think fractions and adding fractions. I've been I've been almost circular with my my thinking around this. So so I have been so this year and last year I have been writing a curriculum for the trust. Um, so I've been writing a a whole scheme of work, as it were. It's not quite that, but it's um, I've been writing a curriculum for years one to year six for the trust, thinking about you know all of these things. Um, and at one point, I wanted to get rid of things like adding and subtracting fractions, uh, particularly when it came to mixed numbers, or particularly when it came to where there was a lot of equivalence to find, because I felt that it was a lot cognitively for children to grasp. But then I actually came round to thinking again, because if we want our pupils to be fluent with additive structures and uh, like as, as Neil said really understanding what addition is um, and the different strategies that we can use for addition and subtraction then I think that actually it's a really important part of that and I think it's really important for development. Um, I would get rid of time in stage one um, if I had my way um, there would be no formal teaching of time until probably year five or year six. I'm not saying you'd never look at the time um, but I think the, the formal expectations for time, um, children, as you say, the base 60 system is, is complicated. Children these days, particularly when we're thinking about analog time, their lived experiences of that just aren't really what we, what we even as children had. I mean, I remember having a watch as a child that was an analog watch and children now don't experience that. So I would personally get rid of it all until year five or year six um, and kind of teach it incidentally. Um, my thing at the moment that I'm grappling with and um, I'm sure Neil and Stuart will have opinions on is around um, statistics across the national curriculum, specifically um, line graphs. So, I've actually stripped out line graphs um, from most of Key Stage 2 and um, they're being taught in science. Um, but I'm thinking more now about how graphs are used and how kind of um, line equations and things like that are used in secondary. Um, so this year I've run the NCTM's 5 to 8 continuity programme and it's made me really think about how graphs, line graphs in particular, are used in secondary, thinking about two variables, whereas we in primary, it's almost always a, a time and something graph, so time distance graph. And I think that we um, are not exposing children enough to um, the way I call it, and it's not a very mathematical thing, but the connection between coordinates and graphs we teach them very separately in primary and I think we need to think more carefully about how they come together so I would like to um, rather than throw it all out I'd like to have a rethink about how we look at 
graphical representations in primary thinking about how they can work in other subjects like science and how necessarily you know how how we can teach them differently to support uh, their sort of linear journey into secondary. So now um, I'm nodding away with with what Lisa said there. Um, I think a lot of a lot of really um, helpful points coming out there. Um, it's, it's perhaps appropriate just now. This might be the moment for me to reveal the, the horrifying truth that my background is in secondary uh, teaching. Um, Fifteen years in the classroom, uh, head of secondary maths. But since joining Complete Maths, I've had the the delight and the the pleasure and the privilege of of meeting, working with, and talking to. Uh, lots of primary teachers. Um, listening to this podcast um, has been great for me, a revelation for me. Um, listening to folks like yourselves speaking um, has, has really widened my eyes to what goes on in, in primary schools. And I don't just mean in mathematics, because of course we've got to remember that primary teachers wear many hats and to, to be able to teach somebody to read and write and yet to still also be able to build the solid mathematical foundations. I think that that deserves incredible um, you know, kudos and uh, recognition really is it really is amazing what, what primary teachers do. Um, and so I suppose I'm sort of kind of uniquely placed on the panel to comment on this. Uh, not, not also at least because most of my teaching career has been in Scotland where the curriculum is obviously obviously different, but there's a few things that I wanted to say on, on this question, um, which I'm not a fan of this question um, in the sense that I don't think it's helpful to split primary and secondary. In, in, the, in the way that we do. Um, I'm not even convinced the sort of key stages are really helpful either because they're all nudging towards a, at this age, you should be doing this sort of thing. Now, if you're on the trajectory to get the, the, the grades seven, eight and nine for GCSE and you're in that 16%, and that's great, but there's over 80% who are probably not quite ready to be doing what we're, what we're giving to them. And so I, I like to just try and think about the curriculum as a whole, as a whole big experience and just a sort of an all through thing. Um, one of the things that's come up in, in, in many conversations with different groups of primary teachers is this thing about time. It's really quite incredible. Um, you know, as a secondary teacher, 10, 12 years into my career, I would have no idea how to teach somebody time at all. Um, so I can imagine there are huge, huge challenges in there. So Neil's idea of taking time to make time, I think I quite like that. There's probably a t-shirt in there, Neil, somewhere. Um, but what I would rather we talked about or rather we considered was instead of either pulling content out or pushing content off into the secondary world is that we focus on our pedagogy and we think about how we can perhaps improve the quality of the learning that goes on um, because we might find that those pupils who struggle to add fractions um, in, in, in year six say who then go to school secondary school and struggle to add fractions in year seven. And then we find we're still trying to teach them to add fractions in year 10. Maybe it would make more sense to really focus on what goes on at the beginning there. Um, we don't need to have big numbers. We don't necessarily have to have mixed numbers, but the concept of fractionness, the understanding of addition, and then working with things like common denominators and, and that idea of sort of unitization and things that are so powerful because they appear over and over and over as we carry on through this journey in the in the sort of wonderful universe of math. So instead of talking about what are we going to sort of horse trade across the, the fictitious boundary of primary and secondary, I think we should really be saying, what can we learn from one another about how we teach these things? And as a secondary teacher, I can tell you what pupils really struggle with 
for years into secondary maths and then maybe we can reflect back and say well what's the experience in primary like and how can we together come up with a way of, of tackling this and solving this. Now you, you talked Lisa about statistics and um, my, my predecessor as head of department at the school where I then became head of departments was a massive massive statistician big big fan of statistics and I basically spent the next six years trying to eke statistics out of our curriculum just slowly moving it away because I believe in our um, in the era that we live in now statistical literacy is massively important but we're, we're looking at big data and we're looking at algorithms and we're looking at um, it's all it's all done through technology so what's most important for me and you know some of my colleagues might not be happy with this is, is, is not that we spend hours and hours painstakingly drawing bar charts and, and, and line graphs and things. It's that we, we start to get an idea of what these graphs show us, um, what these graphs tell us, what can we understand to be true, what can we question and challenge about these things. And um, you know, if, if, if you can sort of farm off the, the, the line graphs to science, then I think that's a great idea. Um, but do we really want pupils to be painstakingly marking out the, the intervals on, on axes and, and sort of plotting points? Yeah, it's all good for the, um, you know, the, the manual dexterity and the hand-eye coordination. And there's value in all of these sort of practical things. But for me, I think I would rather be showing pupils a couple of graphs and saying, what are these telling us? How can we challenge these? So we can still have statistics in the curriculum, but just take a different sort of slant or a different sort of um, view on, on what we're trying to achieve with it. And then you talk about graphs, took you on a little bit, Lisa, to talk about this, this link you said, I think, between coordinates and, and graphs, this coordinates and graphs thing. And I think I'm right in the way that I'm interpreting what you're saying in that you're, you're talking about sort of the relationship between what, what we kind of put in and what kind of comes out. So we do this and we get that back um, which, is, which is essentially a function, a mathematical function, a rule that takes an input, processes it in some way, turns it into an output. And you've hit the nail on the head. This was the bit I was really nodding at, Lisa, to be honest, because I know for a fact that the pupils I've taught, and it could well be just through my sheer incompetence in teaching, but the pupils I've taught have really, really struggled to get the, the connection between uh, a function, which you know, is like a mathematical rule written algebraically, and the graph that it produces, this idea of we feed something in, we process it, it comes out. And do you know what? Not only does it have a nice numerical pattern, we can see a constant pattern or some sort of pattern in the numbers. It's got a beautiful graph that is the visualization of the pattern that the function created. And I think far too many pupils, unfortunately, despite teachers' best efforts, it seems, don't see that connection and, and, and appreciate that beauty. Um, and once, and this goes back to what we were talking about in the first point, once you realize that you put something in, you process it, something comes out, and if you know what comes out and you kind of know what went in, then you can figure out this, the rule that created it and you can run it in reverse and you can put two of them together and you can make new things. Once you, it opens up, it unlocks the door to so much of secondary mass. So I'm 100% with you, Lisa, in your curriculum, uh, coordinates and graphs, functions, that's that's where we want to go. Rules, if there's a, if there's a, if there's a, is what I often say, you can see it visually with just pictures. If there's a, if there's a visual pattern um, or a numerical pattern, then there's a rule. And if there's a rule, there's a graph. And once we've got the graph, we've got power. We can do all sorts of wonderful stuff. So um, sort of beating around the bush a little bit of this question, but that I think is um, you know, something that we, we could definitely explore and um, take advantage of. 
thanks Stuart because function was the word I was looking for and um, that's with my lack of secondary um so I think yeah I agree completely. I think that's that's the thing I think what you said about you know us there needs to be more collaboration between primary and secondary and I think unfortunately you know schools we are we are tied to the national curriculum you know unfortunately um but we do have a bit of flexibility there and I do think we need to be thinking a bit more carefully about actually well okay you know if we've got an end of key stage two deadline because of SATs unfortunately but you know I know they do I'm with you I think it's a linear process what can we do how can we jiggle things around and I think you're exactly right with with the, the for us primary people children think of graphs and they think of line graphs and interpreting line graphs and the interpretation is you know what was happening at seven o'clock at what time was the the I don't know the bath at 50 whatever it is um and they don't think about it in the way of functions and rules and patterns and I think that's where we're missing out I think we have elements of the primary curriculum that rather than throwing out or rather than um moving although I think something should be moved later like time um I think it is about looking at secondary and thinking well okay what what can we do to support where their learning is going and then also like you say what is going what are you struggling with in secondary that we can then make sure that we are building those foundations of which circles nicely back to mastery it does all tie together because i think we're you know i'm trying to give as few opinions as possible my only note from the actual panel was be more neutral when hosting you know that was my takeaway from the weekend but were the attitude that you've adopted and developed over time, Stuart, where you acknowledge that this is one big journey and that there's a, a camaraderie between primary and secondary that's necessary for success? You know, it feeds into what you're saying, Lisa, about the primary expectations. Well, those expectations are exactly the same for foundation, give or take a few bits of material, when the pupils are maybe, what, six years older and when they're doing their, sitting their GCSEs? And so where you don't take this sort of well-rounded and carefully considered approach, that's where you end up with people still failing to meet that basic threshold of functional numeracy, you know, which essentially a foundation GCSE means you can go out into the world and it won't be a massive struggle for you, you know, anything above that, and then you're becoming more and more proficient, you know, so I think it's really important that um, the, the more we can do to support each other across phases and to adopt your position, Stuart, I think the better off the system will be. Just to, to sort of round that up a little bit in terms of supporting one another, talking across the, the, the sectors, um, you know, Complete Mass does a whole bunch of mass confs, which uh, you may be familiar with. I know uh, you've been involved in them. Um, the panel's been involved in them. We are we're running a primary mass conf. Um, we've done it in the past. We're doing another one, uh, which is very very exciting. I'm looking forward to being there, and I hope uh, as many of you will be there as possible. Um, 28th of September uh, is the date uh, in Leicester. So have a look at the CompleteMass.com website um, and find out more about that. Um, I think a great opportunity, one day conference for colleagues to get together, and and not just primary. Um, you know, I've been saying to, to as many secondary colleagues as I can, listen to this podcast. You'll learn, you might learn more about maths teaching in one episode than you have in the last five years of your, of your sort of secondary world. Uh, really is that important. That's obviously very kind of you to say, Stuart. I mean, the first, my first interaction with MathConf, despite seeing it from afar for a number of years, I was 
worried about the fact that there were secondary teachers there. You know, as irrational as that is, I thought secondary teachers, as a primary teacher, I'm inferior to them because I don't have the, the subject knowledge. I don't have the, the specialism to their, that extent. And then I went to the first virtual comp, which and, and just watched. And we were having, you know, there were chats happening on YouTube. And I thought, well, actually, this isn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. And if I have a message for anybody who's thinking about going to Mass Comp, so for instance, Mass Comp 30 is in Manchester, although there is a virtual one in August before then, you know, it's go for it because A, you know, I'm trying to get as many primary people to join me as possible so I can hear lots more about maths, but also it's a completely irrational fear because teachers just want to help each other. Teachers just want everybody else to do a really good job. So anything any any concerns were in my head and they might just be in yours too um can i just echo what you said kieran um so my first basketball experience was a face-to-face -face one several years ago um in kettering not to be confused with the kettering one you've just done and i went on my own um and it was i i think there has i mean i might be wrong um but i think there have been there's been more of a primary presence more recently than perhaps when I went. I met very few primary people there, but that wasn't because, I, I mean, I spoke to lots of people, but I may have just spoken to, you know, I was random sample, they were all secondary people, but they were so supportive and they were so interested in what we do at primary. And I think, you know, working with this five to eight continuity programme has made me realise just how, how in awe I am of, of secondary teachers, but equally how in awe of, of primary teachers, secondary teachers are, because I think, as Stuart has said, you know, they don't necessarily grasp how we teach time. They have no real concept of how we teach early number to children, and they are blown away. So I echo that, Kieran. And um, if you're thinking about coming to Mathscom, do because we'll be there when we can get around the country, um, and you'll meet some amazing people, and you will learn so much as well. Yeah, no, my first, I was fortunate. I had a few of the the Mathscom mini, the online ones, and obviously very fortunate Kieran that you decided that you'd uh, take a chance and present on me about some of the ideas we've talked about and challenge and depth and what all that means. Uh, Kettering was my uh, first one in person and I was apprehensive, especially that for those of you who don't know, they always enjoy a, a treasure hunt uh, which is full of mathematical challenges which is full disclosure goes, goes far beyond my understanding of mathematics. Um, However, the conversations that um, you know I was able to have with people about, you know, we understand, you know, mathematics, mathematics is a hierarchical subject. There are things that primary teachers can do that secondary teachers do need to know because there is this seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, age gap between what the your um, highest attaining child in year seven can compared to your lowest attaining, and the. the the fact of the matter is that child who's at that lower end of that attainment gap needs the pedagogy that primary school um, teachers, you know, are able to access. Uh, at the panel, I, uh, you know, I mentioned about how you know, understanding the the principles of counting. You know, if you have children there who do not actually aren't able to actually count yet, understanding what those five principles of counting are are so important before you can actually then progress them on that journey. And you'll be amazed, you know and how much your pedagogy actually changes once you can verbalize once you actually understand what those uh, counting principles are that you know it is one of those in terms of those like the 
mathematical didactics that you know, um, you know complete maths offer and that you know Mark McCourt you know, talks about a lot you know understanding those it's, it just opens up a world of mathematics to students because you're able to teach it to them in a way that hopefully then makes sense to them so yeah lots of uh, lots of love for uh, the maths cons and you get really cool mugs so you know what's not to enjoy about that yeah, splitting the sessions is a really good idea because Chris such a mad swing did it at that virtual one and me and Neil did it at a later one. It splits the workload, but also takes half the pressure onto the other person as well. So this, this has been fantastic. I might try and get you guys together once a week because even though we did these questions before, the answers aren't this, exactly the same. You know, there, there are themes, but the examples are different. And I could literally listen to you guys talk for... For hours about this stuff and I say that quite a lot but actually I've done all the listening tonight and I could do a whole lot more but I do think that we've got time for one more question and I think it sums up everything quite nicely and I'd like to know what gives you hope for the future of mathematics education well I'll go first I suppose um, you know we, we we all must have hope for the future of maths education or we wouldn't be we wouldn't be sitting here in the, on this panel. We wouldn't be tuning in uh, to this podcast. We must have hope, and um, I think I think that's what it is. It's it's the community, and it's it's the people that are involved in the community, because uh, especially over the last couple of years with all the different challenges, um, and 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 education is not the only sector that's been stretched. But teachers have have done incredible things, amazing things. Um, learned Zoom. <laughs> For instance, you know, become become wizards uh, on technology that they might never actually have touched, and all to support the children that they care about. And so, I know this question is about maths education, but that first part of that answer, without a doubt, is is just about education in general. Um, you know, we, we need great people in teaching. Um, you're not going to become a millionaire at the end of it, but uh, there's a different reward there for you. Um, and you know, I'm not in the classroom anymore, uh, so I don't get to work with with young people on a, on a daily basis but I still think that I'm contributing in, in some way um, trying to trying to help and encourage teachers to to look at their pedagogy and, and make some changes that will impact on to, to children so I think um, that's my big hope for education in terms of mathematics you know I think I think we really do have um, a, a small but growing nucleus of, of people who do now understand a mastery type model and, and, a, and a way of being highly effective when it comes to teaching mathematics. And the more that we talk across the whole of schooling, primary and secondary, the more we work together, the more we share that understanding and the more people that join um, and, and, and take a, an approach that is, is putting the pupils at the center rather than sort of putting grades and, you know, sort of, I'm, I'm reluctant to say sort of government driven, but certainly political agendas ahead of, of pupils' experience of schooling. Uh, the more that we sort of start to think um, in, in, that, in that way, uh, I think the better for, for everybody, the better the experience is for the, for the pupils, but also the more enjoyable it is for teachers as we, as we work through. What gives me hope? It gives me hope that we're we are going in the right direction. Some of you, I think, on the panel have, have, have contributed to the, the, the latest effort that, that we've made at Complete Mass to try and uh, help 
teachers um, close these gaps and to, to do the corrective work, the, the tutor platform that we have is something that is knocking on the door. Well, in fact, it's, it's, it's probably going through the door now of solving Benjamin Bloom's Two Sigma problem. We, we do have a situation where you could give every pupil in your class a one-to-one -one tutor if you wanted to. And so with, with people in the sector thinking like that, producing resources like that, um, that's the sort of thing that, that gives me hope um, for the future of, of mass education. What gives me hope is quite nicely introduced by Stuart, but I think I'm going to be a bit more primary specific. So when I started my teaching career 12, 12 13 years ago now, um, it doesn't feel like, feels like yesterday, but um, I was I was given the role of maths lead um, as an NQT. Um, I've got an English degree, so I often feel like I'm cheating a little bit when I talk about maths, um, but um, I was given the role of maths lead and had no idea what I was doing. And back then, um, in my little corner of the world, so Norfolk, um, generally um, attainment is not great in Norfolk, it's getting better, it has highs and lows, but um, the CPD was not great either. So there weren't many opportunities for primary professional development you know certainly back then mastery wasn't the word anyone talked about people started talking about manipulatives um and the only person really who gave me professional development was a woman called Alison Borthwick who was just incredible I think she's quite well known across the UK but she's a um, really good early math specialist um working in Norfolk and Suffolk and she's just incredible um but if you fast forward to now primary is actually being recognized and I think um secondary schools I think tr mats and trusts are actually giving a damn about what is happening in primary in terms of mathematics education I'm not saying that nobody did 12 13 years ago but certainly if I think now about the opportunities that teachers have to develop their understanding you know we have the NCETM we have complete maths we have um, various schemes and as we said you know there are issues with those schemes but at least they are trying to address problems that we have in teaching of maths and I think that you know you've got hubs and you've got local authorities doing more and more specifically for primary education you know we have this wonderful very exciting primary maths conference coming up you don't see many primary dedicated maths things um but there are more and more and that's what gives me hope for the primary mathematics teaching it gives me hope because we are we are on the map now you can't ignore us you can't ignore the fact you know and the fact that we've got specialists I'm really lucky that I'm a specialist in inverting in quote marks um, but I get to leave maths across my trust and I know you know the work Neil and Kieran do amongst so many other people we are a small but mighty collection of primary specialist people and that that gives me hope that makes me really excited for the future yeah, just to echo what um, everyone said, I just think the wealth of information that is out there for primary school teachers to learn more and not just about subject knowledge in terms of you know, how do I extend, you know, think about what key stage three maths looks like, but you know, just the, the pedagogical content knowledge that is out there for primary school teachers, whether that be through, you know, um, Full disclosure, our trust where um, you know, every teacher has a log on to a complete math CPD college, which we find invaluable. Um, it's not the only one out there, of course not, but you know, that has you know, fundamentally changed the way that I know some of our teachers have 
thought about the way that they teach or present certain mathematical ideas. So I think what gives me hope is that there seems to be, with the uh, advent of kind of you know, curriculum that's uh, come in the last kind of you know five odd years, what's come with that, and I think it's changed a little bit behind it, is this pedagogical content knowledge that people are now starting to understand. All oh, right, okay, well we have this really interesting curriculum. Now it's like, how do we enact this? So actually children actually begin to learn this. And I think that's what kind of gives me hope is that we're kind of starting to drift into that next phase of development that I think most most schools are probably um, coming to now, which is that how do we enact this in a way that means that all children can understand it. Where do I go to? That means that if I've used uh, Numicon to try and teach uh, uh, number bonds within 10 where do I go to now if Numicon hasn't worked for that child well okay uh, Kieran's done uh, some CPD maths college on how to use uh, Cuisinaire rods for example on how to do that okay brilliant I've got a set of those in the maths cupboard I'll try and use those or double-sided counters whatever it might be and I just think having that wealth of information at your fingertips is just so going to be so valuable to teachers lots of reasons to be hopeful then and, you know, I'm totally with you, Neil. I mean, I think I've subscribed for the last three years, you know, even before I was on there, I was watching those videos while, you know, in the background and stuff. And I think, you know, we, we, we don't recommend stuff unless we genuinely mean what we say. And it, it's been a part of my professional development for years. And it's, you know, my school pay for it. And it's ridiculously cheap, you know, 80, 82 quid, 84 quid, I think, which is nothing in a school budget. But for the value, you know, you can watch Johnny Hall talking about multi-base, you know, for 60 minutes, but spread out over maybe five or six activities. You know, Atoll's made it last three months on the on the Discord. And, you know, and I know so much more about place value now because of Atoll taking in different directions. You've, you've done really well, Kieran, to, to sort of be impartial and, and remain quiet to, at the side. But th th there's definitely scope here for you to, to take that last question yourself as, as well. Um, and, and, and tell us what gives what gives you hope about the future of mass education. <laughs> no, I ask the questions around here. <laughs> um, I mean, we've had three tremendously challenging years, and teachers, schools, and their pupils—you know, the communities—are still going strong. You know, basically, if you'd said to people in 2019 that there would be a worldwide pandemic that would bring everything to a halt but that you would need to summon the strength to keep going even wave after wave of difficulty you know i i would have laughed and said no it's impossible we'll just give up as a species but you know i hope i'm not being too hyperbolic but we didn't and we're almost back to that point now where the losses that did take place in many instances you know, where people are taking a sensible approach to how they want to support people's in, in, I don't want to use the term catching up, but I suppose I have to, you know, in filling those gaps or in learning the mathematics that they missed out on because the, the conditions weren't ideal. You know, I think I feel hopeful that we're, it might be possible to get back to where we were and maybe even go further than that. Um, so I don't know if that's a bit of a, a soppy um, and deluded answer, but yeah, I think the resilience shown by the profession and 
our commitment to our pupils. You know, I think that's what drives most people. And I think that's what will drive us forward in the future. I mean, it's, it's been wonderful chatting to you guys. All that's left to do is to say thank you very much to Tom and Charlotte for their questions that they, that they provided. Thank you to everyone who sponsors coffee, who listens every week. Thank you, Lisa. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to spend my evening talking about, talking about maths, uh, particularly with uh, such wonderful, interesting people with great opinions. Thanks. Thank you, Stuart. Well, thank you, Kieran, for... Um... For inviting me onto the panel and thank you Lisa and Neil um, you know just to echo what Lisa said great conversation tonight and I'm looking forward to next week and thank you Neil uh, thank you everyone looking forward to uh, Mass Conf primary in uh, September I'll definitely be there and to everyone at home until next time thanks for listening mm -hmm.